And you have to be willing to pivot and shift as you're making those pivots and shifts to not feel like you failed because you didn't like you didn't do X, Y, Z thing that you said you were going to do. Like, it's okay. Like, if you did something for a period of time and you decide to do something else, it's really okay. And I think that I've talked about this on Instagram before, but I think so many times, like, we stay stuck on one path because we're too afraid to turn because we feel like if we make a turn, like, we feel like we failed. If we, like, change our mind about our path or if we go start doing something different, we feel like we are we failed someone. So I think that I've learned that it's really okay to change your mind about something. It's really okay to pivot. Um, it's really okay to change plans. And it doesn't mean that it just means that you're a person, that you're a growing, evolving, changing person. It has no bearing on on your worth or your ability to do anything, really. Welcome to the UNI podcast, a space where we share stories to uplift while reflecting and working on ourselves. My name is Ozzy. And I'm Kara. And here we engage in conversations centering on sisterhood, wellness, spirituality, and more. Join us each week as we learn and grow together. This quarantine has allowed me to learn about my hair. Kara knows this, but I learned how to do like knotless braids. I finally learned how to install wigs. You know, I'm yeah she stopped dropping hundreds yes I, yes that's true that's true every couple of months to get somebody else to do it i stopped dropping hundreds of dollars um for people to braid my hair when i realized that i can learn how to do it myself so life is good especially in the hair department nice i think i'm the opposite like i spent so much time like so many years like doing my hair by myself i'm now like i don't do my hair by myself i go to the salon because i just can't it's just not not gonna happen <laughs> I definitely feel I'll get to that point. Yeah. I feel that. I'm arriving at my hair fatigue now. I don't really want to do my own hair anymore. That's why I bought a wig. My wig is coming in a couple of weeks. I'm just going to throw it on and call it a day. No, but same. I don't do braids as often. I used to do my braids every month. And we're now approaching the third month when I haven't done my braids. I'm also in the wig life too. So yeah, at that point, it's getting tiring, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. It's a journey, right? Yeah, Definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the UNI podcast. Um, I found you on Instagram and obviously you're Nigerian. I, I gravitate towards Nigerians. But yeah, it was just amazing how far you've gone into the academic sphere. And it's such an interesting, you know, concept, but also world that I really didn't know much about, you know, the PhD, the black PhD woman realm that there is. And I think it's amazing how you've also created and are encouraging a space for women who, who do PhDs and who are interested in research and things of that sort. So I was just really excited to talk, be able to talk to you and learn more about your journey, but also, you know, you yourself as well. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to be in conversation with both of you. Yeah. So you actually were talking about you being in Kenya. Why did you pick Kenya as your specific destination and why now? Yes. So my husband is from Kenya. As you said earlier, I'm from Nigeria, but I grew up in America. Um, so I moved to Nigeria when I was two. My whole like, kind of like lived experience is in America. My husband is from Kenya and went like lived in Kenya until he went to college. That's where we met. After about, I think it was like nine years away from home. So two years, he did like a two-year program before college and then four years of college. Then he worked for two years somewhere and then did two years of grad school. 
and then actually over 10 years, like now that I'm counting <laughs> over 10 years, he was away from home for over 10 years. Um, and so he really wanted to come back and kind of spend some time with his family. And then so then for me, when we moved, I had, was finishing up my PhD. Um, and I had been one of those people who I went into a PhD program right after I finished college. So I basically just has been in school since I was four. So when he kind of brought up the idea of moving, I knew that when I finished my PhD, I knew that I wanted to take a break and kind of just like reset and figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I was happy to do that resetting in, an, in another country. Like I, that didn't, that sounded like in, it was interesting to me. Um, so we decided that we would move to Kenya for two years and do like a little experiment. Um, I was also pregnant. So, you know, we're also thinking about being able to be close to family. Um, although my family's in the U.S. We had not spent that much time with his family. Um, we figured that we would come here, kind of have the baby and have him be raised around the Kenyan clan. And then eventually he can hang out with the Niger people. So, so yeah, that's why we chose Kenya. And, and that was why the specific time frame. Yeah, that's amazing. I feel like a lot of parents are doing that where they really want to integrate that culture, whether it's, you know, African or Caribbean or any other place into like their children's lives. And the same thing happened to me where I was actually born in the United States. And then I think after first grade, they moved me back to Nigeria and I was there up until high school. So that's amazing that, um, you know, you were able and you prioritize that for your kids as well. Yeah, I didn't get that experience, um, but I do feel like there's a lot of value in growing up in a place where, you know, you're like raised by a community and not just your household and not just your parents. Um, also just a cheaper cost of living, being able to be outside and like fresh air. So there are a lot of, I think there are a lot of benefits to raising kids on the continent. And because of the work, kind of work that both of us do um, and can do, I think it's a lot easier now to be really mobile and I can work from anywhere, essentially. So it was a really easy decision. That's really great. I feel it was really important, too, to make sure that your kids kind of know their culture, know where they come from. So I really love that you're doing that for your son. But with that, I want you to tell us more about your story. I know you said that you uh, you were born in Nigeria, but then you moved to America. Um, but tell us more about your story with, like, your doctoral program. How did you know that's what you wanted to get into? And just, but how has it led you to where you are now? Absolutely. So my name is Ijamakola, Dr. Ijamakola. Um, as I said, I was born in Nigeria, moved to the U.S. when I was like 18 months old. My mom was a nurse, and so there was a nursing shortage in the early 90s that brought lots of Nigerians to America, and we were part of that group. Grew up in New Jersey, northern New Jersey. I always liked to read. I would probably say that like my educational journey started there. I always loved to read. I was always like not going to sleep. I'd be under the covers reading like with a flashlight. So I've always Wait, loved that's my reading. childhood. That's literally yes. <laughs> wow, my mom. I remember when my mom told me readers are readers readers. Le- girl. I just typed that in the chat. I, I just typed that because I was the girl. I, I was similar to you. Where during like our rest time, like our siesta back in boarding school in Nigeria, I would go into the bathroom with my books and read. I wouldn't sleep. So I I understand completely. <laughs> Yeah, reading is so, it's actually, I agree. I definitely agree that readers are leaders. Um, And I think now that I have a kid, I'm kind of starting to, you know, like be in the literature about, you know, what makes kids smart. And so far, all I've seen is just reading. Like like kids who read tend to be smarter (laughs) from an early age. So yes, I was a, I loved reading. You know, I, I did pretty well in school. And I think 
for a lot of Nigerians who do well in school, you're told that you're going to be a doctor. So, and because my mom was a nurse and I already had, you know, that kind of exposure to the healthcare system, I decided from a very young age that I was going to be a doctor. I was going to be a pediatrician. Um, I loved kids. And that was my plan in life. Went to college thinking that I was going to major in, I think when I applied, I said I was going to major in like molecular biology or something. Got to college and college was, I went to a predominantly white institution, but college was the first time that I was around a large number of other smart black people. My high school was, I went to a private high school I was one of like three black kids in a class of like 120. So when I got to college, I was like, oh my gosh, like there's so many black nerds over here. Like, oh my gosh. (laughs) Um, And just like really, really felt like I was at home. Absolutely loved my college experience. Most parts of my college experience. But in the classroom, I was just like not here for chemistry. First year took biology. That was fine. Second year took chemistry, like orgo. And I was like, nah, this ain't my life. So um, I decided to instead major in history of science because it was the only major. It allowed you to count your major towards your pre-med requirements, but it wasn't a hard science. So that's the only reason I majored in history of science. And uh, my mom likes to make fun of me because history was my least favorite subject in high school. And the subject that I had, it was like the only class that I ever got a B in in high school (laughs) was history. And then I ended up Like I have a PhD in history of public health, which is just crazy. So, um, but anyway, so I majored in history of science just because it was like convenient. It was a convenient major um, and then ended up falling in love with the discipline. Um, I got really interested in how ideas about science, because science, I think people often think of science as absolute and objective. Science is made and created by people and people are not absolute and people are not objective. So I just got so interested in how people's ideas of how the world works, like finds its way and it embeds its way into science, embeds its way into health, embeds itself into medicine. So I got really into that, was writing a senior thesis and then my advisor, because I had by this time, I think by junior year, I, I dropped pre-med and I was like, nah. And then was writing a thesis my senior year and my advisor said that I should apply to doctoral programs. And so I did, and then I got in, and then I went. I wasn't, you know, thinking about, oh, I mean, I think by, probably by that time I thought it might be cool to be a professor, but I had such a, wow, I had no idea, like, what the actual life of a professor was. I thought, I think I thought that professors operated, like, K-12 through teachers where I was like, oh, I get a three-month vacation, so I go and I teach my class, and then over the summer, like, I just, like, chill and do whatever and travel, and that's just hilarious and I thought that like I really honestly did not know I did not know so much going in um but I I wanted to be a professor because I thought that it was a flexible job <laughs> with <laughs> where you could move up in the ranks quickly and yeah very very misguided but that's essentially how I ended up in a doctoral program because I did not ask enough questions um <laughs> went to Columbia for my PhD loved being in New York growing up in New Jersey New York was always like just slightly out of reach and having the kind of parents who were not about to just let me go frolic in New York with my as they would say so-called friends they're like they're not your real friends they're your so-called friends <laughs> So New York just always was this place that I wanted to, I just like always wanted to live in New York. So it was a kind of no brainer when I got in. I was like, I'm definitely about to have my best life in New York. And I really did enjoy um, living in Harlem. I lived there for like five years before moving 
out back to Jersey. But yeah, so that was kind of my journey through into doctoral program. And then um, I was there for seven years. I did my dissertation on the history of asthma in African American urban cities. I was especially kind of looking at how over the course of the 20th century, medical ideas about the relationship between asthma urban environment and blackness were intertwined. Um, So that's what I wrote about. And that's what I primarily research on when I'm actually doing research, which is not that often. So yeah, so that's a little bit about me. Wow. Well, thank you for that. Honestly, um, we all have those (laughs) (laughs) that our parents don't let us just frolic around with. It's really interesting how you kind of focused in not on science, but on the inner connections of science and the inner dwellings of science because I'm actually taking a class an anthropology class about science and it's called illness healing and something else but we're talking a lot about how science was initially created outside of western biomedicine and how western biomedicine has kind of become the range of what how we look at science so I just thought it was really interesting but you see that you you have redefined what it means to be a black woman but also what it means to be a Nigerian woman what do you believe needed to be redefined? And then how was that journey of redefining? What does that look like? Yeah, I had a really great childhood. Like my parents really set me up for success. I am thriving in life largely because I listened to what they told me to do. (laughs) That said, growing up in a Nigerian household in America at the time was really difficult for me. I felt at the time like very stifled. I felt that, as I said, like I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't go to like school dances. I couldn't go to birthday parties. Like I went nowhere. I did nothing. I went to church. I went to school. I went to soccer practice and that's it. (laughs) And so, yeah, I think growing up, I, I felt that I felt like my life was so hard, which is funny because when you are an adult and you're hearing about people's childhoods where like they actually have hard childhoods, like abuse or, you know, maltreatment or just really having to fend for themselves. I'm like, you know, I wasn't allowed to go to a party like, you know, so what? (laughs) The life wasn't that hard. But in the moment, it felt like it was terrible. But um, what was difficult, and I think now that I'm older and I kind of have these conversations with my parents, we've kind of come to a mutual understanding that, you know, Nigerian culture many cultures, but Nigerian culture specifically, is very patriarchal. It is a patriarchy. Having two brothers, I'm a middle child of two brothers, I was raised very differently than my brothers. My parents have a really, are are really in a partnership, like their marriage is a partnership, absolutely. But, you know, my mom still did all the cooking. There are a couple of times that my dad, I can like like vividly remember my dad cooking, but my mom did all the cooking, I wouldn't say she did the cleaning because we did the cleaning, (laughs) but, you know, there was still gender inequality in our household. And then I think the other thing with, you know, being raised as a Nigerian girl, the expectations that you go to school, you don't think about boys until you have a degree. And then as soon as you have a degree, you need to get married. And then as soon as you get married, you need to have a child. So there are these expectations that our culture puts on us. Even things like, you know, you live in your parents' house until you're married. So it's like, you're just like, there just there are a lot of different cultural things that are essentially like... Wow, so much truth. You are speaking so much truth. It's the patriarchy. It's the hypocrisy, too. <laughs> well. <laughs> because how do you expect someone to get married when you told them not to talk to any boys? Yeah, and you can't have boyfriends. It's just friends. You just have friends until all of a sudden one day you're supposed to be engaged. <laughs> I'm supposed to be married. Now you're asking me when I'm going to get married. like <laughs> Right. So anyway, I cut you off. I'm sorry. Uh, no, it's okay. So I think that 
So then on top of that, so there's like the Nigerian experience and there's the navigating my black identity, you know, because for a long time, there were so few black, like other black kids in my school. I really was Nigerian. My identity was, I was just Nigerian. I knew I was other, but the otherness was Nigerian. And I think it really wasn't until senior year of high school that I was like, oh, like these people sometimes treat me differently like because I'm black and just understanding what that meant and then it was really cemented when I got to college and was around a lot more black people who could you know talk to me about these experiences and I also was like reading scholarship and and etc but how I redefined you know what it meant to be a black woman and a Nigerian woman for myself was that I just tried to like chart my own path although I have a PhD I am married I do have a kid so I have like you know done all the things quote unquote but I think I did them I did them in in a way that pleased myself and suited myself and did not do them for my parents. You know, my parents, when I wanted to marry my husband, my parents, it was so much drama at first. Like they were just not here for it. And they, at one point, like I kid you not, my mom said that the only way you will marry this man is over my dead body. Like those words came out of her mouth. There are people, like I have friends whose, whose parents were like, oh, you can't date a non-Nigerian person. And they have broken up with that person. But I, I was like, mom, I love you but this is my life and this is what I'm about to be with. So if that means that we're not gonna talk, then that means we're just not gonna talk because this is the person that I'm gonna be with. And I think it also came with having a really strong sense of who I was and a confidence in who I was and a confidence in my own plans. And I, another thing I would tell them like whenever we'd be arguing is that like y'all raised me to think independently and to make smart choices. So if you believe in how you raised me, then you should trust the choices that I'm making. <laughs> Wow, you won. See, that's good. Do you trust yourself? That's good. You like, do you trust yourself? Exactly. No, you actually won. Good way to pin it back around. No, that's beautiful. I'm gonna have to use that too. Any, feel free, feel free anytime. Um, yeah. So I kind of like, you know, I did my PhD the way that I wanted to do it. It took me probably an extra year or so, but I blogged the whole time because that's what would make me happy and that's what I wanted to do. So that's what I did. My parents were like, oh, you need to live in our house until you get married. And I was like, I'm not like, no, I'm going to live by myself in a studio. And that's what I'm going to do. And I already talked about, you know, marrying the person I wanted to marry. And everything is all good now. Like we're all, they love him. There are just times where I had to say like, I respect our culture. I respect you guys as my parents, but I am not going to live my life in your box because y'all had your life. Y'all decided what you wanted to do. And again, you raised me to think and to act independently. And so I'm gonna do what I wanna do, essentially. I love that for you. But I kinda wanna get more into, like further into your higher education and your PhD. Personally, in my experience, cause I know you said that you didn't really ask a lot and you wanted to be a college professor and that's kinda how you found yourself there. But I wanna know more about what sparked your interest in obtaining specifically um, the public health around race and asthma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it goes back to when I was in college. So I took this class, I think it was called like sociology of medicine, but I might be wrong. In this one class, I learned about the concept of social determinants of health, which essentially means that there are aspects of our lives, our race, our gender, our sexuality, where we live, our income, etc., that can impact our health and our 
access to healthcare and our well-being. So I think I got really interested in that concept of social determinants of health, like this idea that it wasn't, and I think this is really where I kind of shifted from medicine to public health, because I think medicine will say, okay, you have a disease, let me give you a prescription to like address your cholesterol. Whereas public health is like, you have high cholesterol because in like infrastructures and systems have been created in such a way that you don't have access to healthy food because of like the zip code that you live in. And so that's why you have high cholesterol. So like, let's fix those like structural and systemic things. So I got really interested in understanding, you know, things that we don't really control, how we look, (laughs) what our gender is, you know, our income, how those things can have like life or death impact on our well-being. So that's how I got really interested in like public health specifically. And then the history part, I think really came from this idea that maybe this actually probably stems from my mom, although because she's a nurse, not although, because she was a nurse. I think that a lot of nurses are like, doctor haters but just like for good reason because really nurses like do all the work like they really actually just do all the work and doctors get a lot of the credit and like a lot more pay and so my mom was always like skeptical of doctors and kind of like always like bad mouthing doctors so I think that I thought about doctors as like not as experts yes but as people who can be wrong and have been over the course of history very wrong on certain things and was just really curious about how like regular people because they're given a title can decide, can like make science and can create science. So I wanted to interrogate how those scientific and medical ideas have changed over time and their lasting effects. With asthma specifically, I can't tell you why I chose asthma specifically because I don't know. (laughs) Um, I think the best answer I can give is that that there are a lot of, asthma is a disease that doesn't have a clear explanation. So for some people, Asthma is genetic. Some people they're the, the they're the only ones in their family who has who have asthma. Some people they get asthma from you know they'll start having an asthma attack when they're around animals like cats. Like it's maybe it's like an allergy to like cat dander that'll trigger an, an asthma attack. Some people it's exercise. It's exercise induced asthma. So like it differs in, in different people. That meant that the way that doctors and researchers have also understood the causes of asthma has also changed over time, but also is kind of like a continually contested topic, um, as opposed to something like sickle cell disease. Like we know sickle cell disease is caused by like a certain like mutation in a blood cell. So that has a very clear explanation, whereas asthma doesn't have a clear explanation. So I thought it would be an interesting disease to kind of look at, well, how have doctors tried to make sense of this disease that they really still don't really understand fully. And how has that changed over time? Um, And then because black people have about three times higher um, asthma rates than white people do, like how have doctors explained that? And how has that changed over time? So that's kind of how I got to my topic. Yeah. Yeah, I love public health. I'm actually my, I'm concentrating in global public health. So this just gets me so excited. And just the idea of, as you said, social determinants of health, epigenetics um, embodiment of trauma and things like that super fascinating to me but I want to know more about yeah you're, you're learning about history or rather you're focusing on the history of science and I was wondering especially when it comes to your research do you ever feel that you want to be more involved in the implementation rather than kind of looking at the past and maybe being more involved in the future and what's happening in the present yeah, that's a really good question. So I'm going to give the short answer, then give an explanation for the answer. The short answer is no, that I'm not really interested in policy implementation or like future work. However, I do really strongly believe that you can't inform the future unless you know the past. And I feel like a lot of times 
we like make the same mistakes in life, even in our personal lives. Like if you haven't reconciled like the mistakes you've made in the past, you're going to continue making those same mistakes. So I see the study of history as being really integral in practical applications and present day applications and future applications. So although I am not necessarily the person who wants to be, you know, like writing policy or implementing programs to improve the racial health disparity and asthma right now, I do think that my work still is important in shaping that work. But I also really believe in like knowing where your strengths lie. And I have trained for now like 10 years as a historian. And so I think to like wake up one day and say, I don't know, like I'm going to now rewrite the EPA guidelines on air, like safe air pollution. Like, girl, you know history. Stay, like, stay in your lane. So, yeah. So that I hope that answers your question. I do care. I like. I do care about the present day and the future. But I think that my, I think that historical work can and should inform that work. And I don't think that I need to necessarily be the person to also do the implementation. Okay, kind of want to get more into Safe Journey Retreat and your adventures. So can you talk to us more about um, Safe Journey Retreat and like, why did you see a need for this? Yeah, so really excited about the Safe Journey Retreat. It is a women's travel trip and empowerment retreat that is happening. The first one, we'll see if there are more, but right now, <laughs> the first one's happening in Kenya, August 29th through September 5th. It really was built out of my own experiences traveling to Kenya. So before I moved to Kenya, I had visited Kenya on five different occasions. The first time I came to Kenya was in 2014. And it was a really transformative trip because this is actually the first, the first time that my parents and I really, really clashed. So I was like, hey, I even like told them, which I didn't, I was even doing them a favor. I was like, hey guys, FYI, like I am going to visit my boyfriend in Kenya in a couple of months. I just want to let you know, cause I'm not a disrespectful child. And they were like, you can't go. And I was like, but I actually am going. <laughs> Oh my gosh, y'all are cracking up. So, <laughs> so it was this whole thing and they were like, you can't go. And I was like, I've already bought the ticket and I'm going. And it was actually, it was a lot of drama. Even like a week before they had my uncle call me and try to refund me the money and was like, it's okay. And I'm like, it's not about the money. Like y'all, I'm going. So anyway, so <laughs> I kind of came to, uh, came on this trip, like with all of this like background family drama and just like the second I landed here, I felt so at peace and not necessarily at home the first time, but I did feel really welcomed and at peace. Before traveling to Kenya, I'd been to Nigeria several times um, and I'd also been to Johannesburg, but I don't know, Nairobi just felt like a really, really, like Kenyan people are just so nice and like welcoming and warm and you know, Kenya has preserved the land, like animals are still roaming, like ain't no animals roaming around in Nigeria. Like we just didn't, we didn't care about like environmental protection the same way. I don't know if it's all East Africa, but at least that Kenya did. And so there was just so much to do here. Nairobi was a, is a very like cosmopolitan city, but then like, you know, but 45 minutes outside of the main, like downtown, like you can see giraffe. So I don't know, there was just something about, about it that made me feel, oh, and like, this is gonna sound so foolish to some people, but if you're Nigerian, I think you'll understand this. They also have power 99% of the time, like constant light. <laughs> That's a necessity. I'm not from Nigeria. Yeah, but we don't have it in Nigeria. But every, like the wind blows <laughs> in the Bahamas and the power goes out apparently. I don't know what's up now. So I understand the need for power. But I also understand the love of, of Kenya. My mom, I don't think I talked about this, but my mom is actually Nigerian. 
My mom is Nigerian. She's not Kenyan, but she's moved by her own will and volition to Kenya. So that's that's why, <laughs> yeah. So I, we understand. Kenya is amazing. Yeah. So yeah. Basically, when I first came, I was like, oh my gosh, this place is amazing, and everybody needs to come here because it's just really, really beautiful. So I felt really strongly. So that's like one, like why Kenya specifically. But then in terms of like why do a retreat. So I think in the process of building an online brand and an online community, I have always thought that, like, whenever I create content, I always try and have, not always, like, some things are just to be cute, but I usually try and have a, some kind of, like, empowering message behind it. Like, I I believe in God. I'm a woman of faith. And so I don't think that God gave me this platform for me to just, like, post cute pictures. Like, I believe that if he's bringing people to me, it's to inspire and encourage and uplift them in some way. And so I wanted to create not only a trip, but an empowerment retreat that brought in speakers to encourage and uplift women in different areas of their lives, whether it's in their career or whether it's um, in family or faith or, you know, thinking about their legacy. So that's why I decided to kind of have, like, mix a an empowerment retreat with a group travel trip. And yeah, so I'm really excited for it. It is, you know, it was supposed to be last year actually, but then, you know, COVID canceled it. So it's been rescheduled for this year and um, we're kind of like knee deep in the planning and securing speakers, which is going really nicely. But I just feel like, oh, I didn't talk about this part. Ooh, it's actually a really important part. I'm glad I remembered. Um, So I think growing up, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but growing up for a long time, just being Nigerian and then realizing adopting a black identity because I think that is a choice like whether you decide or not especially if you are an immigrant like you can say that you're not black and you can say oh I'm whatever you can either prioritize your nationality or you can prioritize your blackness so I think I was I was raised Nigerian and I believed I was Nigerian and then I got to college and I was like oh I'm also black but when I was in college I did feel this disconnect between black Americans typically referred to as African Americans but then me being someone who was literally born in Africa and then grew up in America. Like I really felt like I was also African American, but sometimes people didn't necessarily think that I was able to adopt that um, identity. I just felt like there was a divide between the Black American experience and the African experience, and so I thought that the retreat could be a good way. And okay, and it's also not our fault. Like the media portrays all of us really badly to the other person. <laughs> like on the continent, you know, the depictions of Black people are that. There are ghetto and there are thugs and whatnot. And that's, you know, when we moved, that's what my parents also thought because that's that was the content they were seeing. And then in America, people think that in Africa, we're living in huts and we got lions as pets. And so the media representation, um, and I do think it's an intentional, it was intentionally done like as a post-colonial effort to keep us separate. But regardless, like not to get too deep and political, <laughs> but there is definitely a, a, div- a divide between black people in America and black people in Africa. And so I saw the retreat as one way to help bridge that gap. I think that gap is slightly being over the past maybe four years has been closed. People like Beyonce just like really embracing like all and some people say appropriating, but that's a different conversation. A lot of like African <laughs> culture and, um, and just like ingraining kind of yeah, adopting that and Ankara, you know, everybody wears Ankara and dashikis now. But essentially the retreat was another opportunity to um, bridge the gap between the two worlds. Because I do think that like the only way, not the only, but a, an important tool for black liberation worldwide is we really got to come together. Because the same oppression that's happening in America is still being felt in Africa and vice versa. Yeah, I agree. And I feel like that type of retreat, what you're doing also kind of 
attempts to deconstruct the, the idea of the monolith identity of Africa. As you said, Ankara, Dashiki, and things like that. And it can seem as if Africa is one monolith like one, we're African people. That's how that's how it goes. But it really isn't. And for people to be able to actually go and see Kenya and wherever you decide to place um, the retreats and see that there's actually different cultures within the same country, I think that's gonna be it's gonna be amazing. So, what is your hope for Safe Journey Retreat? What are you? What What do you want to? What in your greatest mind and dreams? What do you want it to look like? But also, what have you learned about the process of? you know, really working hard to create this um, this project and passion project, if you would call it that. Mm-hmm. It, was, it is definitely a passion project because it's not an income generating project. It is definitely a passion project. Um, what do I hope for the retreat? I, I hope that the retreat, as we I think as we started to say, like really, I, I hope that it shifts people's perception of what Africa is and what Africa can be. Also, like having lived here for two years now, that was also part of the reason why I, I felt like I could be an authority and say, like, actually, I do know what's happening here because I actually live here. Um, but I do hope that I, I am able to kind of shift people's perception of of the continent. I hope that people appreciate the richness of the continent and also see it as someplace that they are welcome. So that's one hope for the retreat. I also hope that the attendees who come leave feeling like... So I think that sometimes when you go to, like, a conference or you go to a talk and someone promises to inspire you, it's like, you know, they might give you a few quotes, but I'm like, when I'm looking at speakers, like I'm really looking at people who will give actionable steps that you can implement immediately to improve your life. Like we need to all be in our bag. We need to all be financially secure, relationally secure, emotionally strong, spiritually sound. And so I want people to really leave feeling like they are a, a better version of themselves and that they were able to get that from the retreat. So the, you know, the touristy stuff is part of it, but the empowerment and the speakers and the workshops are also super important. And then what have I learned in the process of planning this? Who what have I learned? I have learned the importance of contracts because there have there was just a, a lot of issues when the pandemic happened and then we canceled the retreat well in advance of any documentation, like a lot of the documentation was like, oh, if you cancel 30 days ahead of time, you get a full refund. But for some reason, there was just a lot of difficulty in getting hotels to refund us. So that, yeah, that was really frustrating. So I learned that you need to have a force majeure clause in all of your contracts that says, if the world is ending, pretty much, I am not <laughs> liable to this contract. If it's like the event can't hold because of forces outside of my control, then, you know, I'm no longer obligated to fulfill my end of the contract. So that's one thing that I learned. I think I also learned not to, like, not to beat myself up. I think that sometimes we make plans and if the plan doesn't go the way that we want it to go, like, we internalize that and we feel like we did something wrong. And so I think that I've learned to be flexible, but also to, like, there was a time where I was like, you know, maybe we should just, just like, just scrap the retreat idea. And although, like, when I first had the idea, I really felt like it was placed on my heart, but I also was willing to let it go and kind of move on and just be okay with that and not take it as like a personal failure of mine, like if I decided not to continue with the retreat. So I think that's another thing that I learned that, and I don't know if that's the retreat who that taught me that or just like 2020 that taught me that, like you just like never know how the world is gonna go and you have to be willing to pivot and shift as you're making those pivots and shifts to not feel like you failed because you didn't like, 
you didn't do X, Y, Z thing that you said you were going to do. Like, it's okay. Like if you did something for a period of time and you decide to do something else, it's really okay. And I think that I've talked about this on Instagram before, but I think so many times like we stay stuck on one path because we're too afraid to turn because we feel like if we make a turn, like we feel like we failed. If we like change our mind about our path or if we go start doing something different, we feel like we are, we failed someone. So I think that I've learned that it's really okay to change your mind about something. It's really okay to pivot. Um, it's really okay to change plans. And it doesn't mean that it just means that you're a person, you're a growing, evolving, changing person. It has no bearing on, on your worth or your ability to do anything really. Yeah, I love that. And even on in the spirit of, as you said, growing and evolving and you being so embedded in that academic sphere and community, what are you currently learning about? What is something, what are you educating yourself on now, especially now that you, you've already gotten your PhD, you know, things like that. But yeah, tell us more. So I told myself I would never go back to school after this PhD. And here I am registering for all sorts of webinars and stuff. So two things that I'm currently actively trying to learn one is nonprofit management. So I launched a nonprofit last summer. I launched Cohort Sisters, which supports black women pursuing doctoral degrees, um, both prospective students and current students. And so although I have very intimate knowledge about being a black woman pursuing a doctoral degree, I don't know how to run a nonprofit. So I am kind of like learning that on the fly. So I've been taking a lot of um, like webinars and reading a lot of material on, on nonprofit management. And the second thing that I've been learning about is actually just management in general. So with my blog, I now have a small team of four people who <laughs> there are times we have meetings and I'm like, oh my gosh, like I am, I'm like leading this meeting and I'm supposed to be like telling people what to do. I'm delegating work and I need to be giving feedback. And because I've been in school for so long, I don't have that much like quote unquote real life or like corporate work experience. I've had like one job where I had a direct supervisor. And so I'm, <laughs> and it wasn't, I mean, it was like, okay job, but it was a part-time position. So like not that serious. Um, but I'm learning how to be a manager so that I can be an effective leader for my company. And that also will translate to the work that I do cohort systems, because as a team grows, I also need to be able to effectively lead and manage that team as well. So I'm trying to teach myself how to be a leader and a manager. <laughs> and I'm also trying to learn the world of nonprofits. On that topic, um, this is going to be our last question for the interview. We just want to know what can we expect next from you? And is there anything that you're excited to share? Yes. Um, what can you expect next? Who knows? I just, I'd be changing. I'd be doing something new all the time. I feel like I'm the, so because my name means safe journey, which is where the safe journey retreat name came from. I really just believe in, in this idea that like life is a journey and like there's no, we're not going, like we're just living and we're just doing things. And it's always like, whatever we do is always gonna be good because I'm safe journey. Um, So I don't, I'm not really sure. Cohort Sisters, I'm really excited about the growth that it's taking. Yeah, we're almost at 1500 members in less than a year. So it's growing really nicely. We are in the middle of a mentorship program um, pilot. Thank you. So in the summer, we're going to open up enrollment for the second round of that and grow that um, and start hopefully getting some foundation funding and university partnerships. So really excited about, you know, the future of cohort sisters really. And then for me personally, I mean, I'm thinking about getting back into the academic world. So I might, you know, get back into the university space, might do some teaching in the university. I, I've had enough of a break from, from school. And so I think I'm ready to re-enter that world again. So I think those are the two main things that you can look out for. So cohort sisters, all the great stuff that's happening with cohort sisters, and then some academic stuff. And of course, the retreat is also on the horizon as well. 
Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kola, for talking to us. It was just an amazing, I just loved the conversation we had. And I feel as if I've learned a lot about your experience, but also your mindset and just your beliefs. So thank you so much for taking the time out. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me. This was, I agree, a really, really wonderful conversation. I'm, I like the direction of the questions that you asked me. So it got me thinking as well. Thanks so much, y'all. Thank you again for tuning in to another episode of the UNI Podcast. For more information and links to everything discussed in this episode, check our show notes below. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating and share it with the people you love. We hope you have a transformative day. Sending love and gratitude. Thank you.